Welcome to season two of Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavidar, a podcast series from Partners Connected Health. I'm your host, Joe Kavidar. Join me as we embark on another exciting season of interesting and thought-provoking conversations with the leaders, disruptors, and innovators who are redefining the future of technology-enabled health and wellness. So many of us talk about the intersection of health and technology and the opportunities it presents to solve some of our most vexing healthcare challenges. But few people have had the unique perspective and experience that our next guest brings to this particular discussion. I've known Susanna Fox for many years, and I'm always delighted to have the opportunity to talk with her and provide a platform for her to share her insights. In fact, in October, Susanna joined us at the Connected Health Conference here in Boston as part of a panel about LAUNCH, which stands for Linking and Amplifying User-Centered Networks Through Connected Health, a multi-stakeholder collaborative that seeks to address challenges of rural cancer care, such as symptom management. Susanna is an advisor, author, researcher, and sought after speaker on the social impact of technology, particularly as it relates to health and healthcare. Her advisory work and research focuses on the power of connection among fellow patients and caregivers. From 2015 through 2017, she served as the Chief Technology Officer of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And as CTO, Susanna created opportunities for entrepreneurship and innovation across the department's 27 divisions and 80,000 plus employees, helping HHS harness the power of data and technology to improve the health and welfare of the nation. Prior to joining the Obama administration, she served as an entrepreneur in residence at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, helping to encourage employees to experiment and catalyze new ways to think about challenges. She also advised organizations like the Collaborative Chronic Care Network as they work to improve the care delivery by including people living with IBD, diabetes, and cystic fibrosis on their innovation teams. For almost 15 years, Susanna was an associate director of the Internet Project at the Pew Research Center, where she directed the health and technology portfolio. There, she pioneered participatory research methods at the center in order to explore how information technology and social media affect the healthcare industry and consumer health experience with a special focus on people living with chronic and rare conditions. And I might interject that I still quote some of that work with regularity. Susanna graduated from Wesleyan University with a degree in anthropology. And Susanna, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Well Connected. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. Earlier this year with Victoria Rideout, you released data from a new national survey on digital health practices among teens and young adults in the US. You measured how teens and young adults ages 14 to 22 years old pursue health and well-being using apps, peer advice, online communications with clinicians, and more. You paid particular attention to the complex relationship between social media and depression uh, among this group. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the key findings and what were some of the lessons we can learn from the data? Thanks. 
that was a really wonderful opportunity to dig in with um, a colleague that I, I actually hadn't worked on a research project with Vicki Rideout before. She focuses on um, uh, children and teens, and I'd always focused on the adult population. And so when Hope Lab and Wellbeing Trust are the two sponsors of the research, asked me to look at this really interesting age group of, of people who are on the cusp of adulthood and people just beginning that stage of their lives, 14 to 22-year-olds. I asked Vicki to, to work with me on it. And what we found is that there's a much more complex relationship between social media and emotional well-being in this age group. And um, what we were hoping to map, maybe for the first time, was um, the relationship that um, a lot of people have opinions about, but they didn't necessarily have data to back up their opinions. And that's what I love to do. I love mm-hmm. to inject data into the public conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were tracking some things that, that Vicki and I had tracked previously, you know, the use of social media, the use of, um, you know, Dr. Google as the de facto second opinion, which, which we did find is true among this population as well as peer-to-peer uh, healthcare, but through the lens of um, using some uh, measures of depressive symptoms and anxiety that really hadn't yet been applied, and and that was just an incredible opportunity to to dig into that relationship. Well, there's so many directions we could take it. I I uh, think that that particular age group is fascinating. We anyone in healthcare delivery, whether it be in the delivery side or the payer side, covets that that age range for all kinds of reasons, and we know that they consume really all services in a very different way than uh, those of us who are in the uh, age range of their parents and and grandparents. So it's uh, it's really fascinating to to hear about it and and the social media side and. Um, maybe just one or two maybe key findings that you can share about either the depression side or the the way they consume healthcare services or want to consume them? Sure. Um, so first, when we look at people who are the young people who are living with depressive symptoms, they are using the internet and digital tools to um, help address their condition. They are very likely to have researched mental health issues online. 90% say they've researched mental health issues. Um, 75% of people living with depressive symptoms in this age group say they have accessed other people's health stories through blogs or podcasts or videos. Um, They're also very likely to have used mobile apps related to health and well-being. And looking just at the general population, what became clear is that um, whether someone's living with um, emotional upheaval or depressive symptoms, all of the young people expressed um, really interesting um, reactions when when we asked them about how they use social media when they're feeling low. And for some people, it's a lifeline. 
and a support Mm. during times of depression and anxiety. And for others, it adds to their distress. And so the, the really important finding, I think, on that score is that we need to understand the complexity in order to um, in order to help people, in order to um, create interventions that are going to be helpful. Um, and it's not always the right thing to advise young people who are feeling depressed to just go offline. Because we heard from these teens and young adults that it really can be a support, um, that they curate their feed to be uplifting, that they make sure to connect with peers who can help them during times of, of stress. Really complicated. And so I, I'm, of course, waiting for the, uh, the next phase, which will help us do some, uh, maybe some segmentation or some generate some persona so that we can... Uh, thoughtfully pursue uh, interventions for for this age range and for this very important topic. Yeah, I, I, we want to dig more into the data. This was just the first report. It was descriptive analysis of the data, um, and there's so much more to do. And one tradition that I'm carrying forward um, that was started at the Pew Research Center is making sure that we um, allow people to really see the, the top line that will eventually publish the data online so that grad students and, and other people um, can dig into the data for themselves. Um, there's, there's, there's so much data still to be had and still to mm. be analyzed. Really exciting project. You uh, have not been shy about proclaiming the most exciting innovation of Connected Health Era is people talking with each other. Uh, at the Pew Research Center, you called it peer-to-peer healthcare, which I loved, uh, and back in 2011 measured it with, a nat- with national survey data. And your research showed that while health professionals were a central source of information, many Americans turned to friends, family, as well as online peers for support and advice when faced with a healthcare problem. As you know, I'm a firm believer that technology can help enhance personal uh, human communication between a patient and provider and between individuals. Can you tell us a little bit more about your concept, how this concept is holding up today, wh- how it's evolved, uh, and uh, what are the opportunities for the future for peer-to-peer healthcare? Thanks. One of the reasons why I um, left the Pew Research Center was that um, after all those years of um, mapping the internet landscape for health, I just kept coming back to one of our strongest findings that whenever I uh, put a survey into the field or did field work and talking to people who were living with um, a life-changing condition or a chronic condition, everyone said the most important thing was when I found someone like me. And when I found someone who um, shares my same diagnosis or had the same surgery and can tell me what it was like in recovery. Um, and, uh, I remember talking to, um, Lee Rainey, who was my boss at the Pew Research Center and Alan Murray, who at that time was the head of the Pew Research Center. And I said, I, I I think I have an answer. I'm, you know, we've been doing all these studies and I have the answer. The answer is peer to peer healthcare. And they said, that's great. You can't work here anymore (laughs) because (laughs) you're not allowed to 
think you have the answer um, <laughs> when you're a researcher, <laughs> um, which is actually why I left and why I started working um, at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and and then um, uh, you know it was asked to become uh, the CTO at HHS. And it allowed me to broaden my view of peer-to-peer healthcare and broaden the impact of it so that I saw how um, access to information and access to each other is something that is not only limited to patients living with, um, you know, ALS, as, as we saw the, mm-hmm. the genesis and mm-hmm. patients like me or um or all of the support groups that we see happening on Facebook. It's, it's actually so much bigger than that. I saw it um, in the federal government when we were empowering federal employees to take a chance on um, a pilot project. We set up essentially peer-to-peer networks for entrepreneurs within the federal government. Um, and so I saw the strength of this idea um, become broader than what I'd seen in my research. And um, in testing it among the 14 to 22-year-olds in the Hope Lab and Wellbeing Trust Survey, we found that one-third of that age group say they have successfully connected online to health peers, and 91% of them say that it was helpful. And so I look at that. That's that's higher, by the way, than anything I ever found in the National Survey of Adults. I only ever found about one quarter of adults who say that they had connected online to someone like them, someone who shared their same health condition. If young people, if 14 to 22-year-olds are having this level of success, they are going to keep doing it. They are going to recommend it to their older uh, relatives, this is when I see the snowball starting to roll downhill, and I'm really excited about it. Well, you know, the, it's wonderful to hear this and think about it from the point of view of a of a healthcare provider. I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades thinking about what it means to be a trained professional of any sort. Um, especially one that's in the business of helping people with problems that they often don't fully understand, whether that's an attorney or, uh, uh, or in my case, a physician, or, and, and there are a few other examples of that, of that kind of training. Um, and, and I think there was a time when, when of course, the, the textbook was the, was the barrier, right? We, we, would, mm-hmm. we had that, but, but that long ago, when, when the internet uh, became a source of information, that went away. So what's left? And a lot of it's about judgment, a lot of it's about pattern recognition. And you know, while I fully embrace what you're talking about, I also wanna know, and this is my question finally after all my uh, ranting, is what, how, what is what do you see the role of, of the provider being? Is it uh, more, uh, when do we pull them in? When do we know that the peer-to-peer hasn't quite got the right answer and needs someone with more training? Well, the good news is that whenever I have put a survey into the field or talk to people who engage in peer-to-peer healthcare, 
they always say that um, they go online to prepare for a doctor's appointment or to recover from a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. It's not a replacement for Mm -hmm. that consultation. And um, as you know, um, Tom Ferguson, who was a mentor to me and was the godfather for what is now the Society for Participatory Medicine, believed in the importance of a doctor or a nurse or or a clinician um, as an expert coach. Right. That the person, you know, the person really on the field (laughs) playing the game um, of life is, is the patient or, and their family, hopefully who's supporting them. And, um, what I think is, is, um, important to remember is that clinicians are still central when it comes to diagnosis and treatment. It's peers who can help connect you with a clinician who can help you solve a a mystery, for example, Mm -hmm. it's peers who can say, now that you've chosen this treatment, here's our recommendation for how to prepare for it. Mm-hmm. Here's our recommendation for what you're going to need to have on hand post-surgery. Um, and also, as you know, so much of health is um, outside the clinical realm. Right. So much of it is, you know, how am I going to arrange pillows so that my loved one can, can rest easy after this surgery? And a, a doctor or a nurse who hasn't had that happen to them may not actually be the best respondent to that question. Right. It might be someone else. Um, I, I also want to put in a word that um, with the, the other thing that I've learned in broadening my view of peer-to-peer healthcare is that um, it can be, um, there's a spectrum to it that out on one end of the spectrum it are the expert patient groups where people are, um, you know, tracking their genomic mm-hmm. data. They're, they're mm-hmm. you know, they're sharing their microbiome. They're, you know, really getting into serious uh, citizen science. Mm. And at the other end of the spectrum are much more lightweight examples of peer-to-peer healthcare. You know, I've seen peer-to-peer healthcare going on in Amazon reviews for books. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and I think that we need to honor and lift that up wherever we find it. Yeah, well said. I'll just say two more quick things. Again, observations as I've thought about this. Uh, and then and I have, of course, other questions I wanna move on to. But there, there are two things. One is that when I was taking pharmacology, uh, the professor jokingly said, we should really have every medical student take every drug you could prescribe just to get a sense of what the side effects are. And I always remembered that because uh, the corollary is those times when I've had an illness or had a loved one who have an illness and have to be on the other side of the relationship, nobody wants to wish anyone illness, but it's, it's such a it makes me such a better doctor to get those experiences because I remember all the things that I start to take for granted seeing 20 patients in a session um, and and it's inevitable that you see things over and over and over again and you get a different perspective. So it's, it's a delicate balance, I think, of trying to remember as much as you can what it's like to be on the other side and, um, and then for those uh, uh, times when you really can say, yes, I've had that experience. You're right, it matters an enormous amount. 
You talk about data as an engine of disruption in healthcare and assert that patients and caregivers should be as much a part of the disruption conversation as any other stakeholder. You believe that we should give individuals access to their own data from medical records to device and personal data tracking. We know that people using the internet to find health information, but we also know that the majority of people don't want to engage in their uh, health or their health data. Uh, it seems to be the last thing that comes up when life is going on. What do we need to do to get individuals more engaged in their health? And how do we include patients and caregivers in that conversation? It's a great question because it goes along with this idea of a, of a spectrum of engagement. And um, what I'm really passionate about is that we not assume we in healthcare not assume that we know where someone is along that spectrum, that um, we may not know um, if someone, for example, is very carefully tracking their own data um, using paper and pencil, and mm -hmm. that it might not look as scientific or, you know, it, it might not look um, like the digital health data that we expect to find. But if we honor that, if we ask people about how they're tracking their health, we might be surprised to find that people are actually more engaged than we know. So, th so that's one point. Um, the other point is to say that um, we also shouldn't assume that people um, won't uh, be triggered into wanting more access to their data when something happens to them that requires data, mm -hmm. you know, you could go along for most of your life and, and not need access to some piece of information or, or some database. And then all of a sudden something happens and you need it. Um, mm -hmm. My position, and, and this is actually dovetailed really beautifully with the work that I did at HHS, is that we need to give people access to the data information and tools that they need to solve problems. And we need to do that at the individual level. We need to do that at the system level. Um, and we need to do that as a country. We need to free the data wherever we can find it to make sure that, um, that uh, state and local governments have access to data so they can track trends. Um, we need to make sure that um, entrepreneurs have access to um, data so that they can use it um, to create the businesses and apps that are really going to fuel the next generation of innovation. And we need to make sure that people, individuals have access to data. And by the way, when I say data, that actually needs to be unpacked into every kind of data, whether it's their electronic health record data, whether it's their device data, such as their continuous glucose monitor, whether it's their pacemaker, whatever data comes from an individual, I believe that individual should have access to it. Um, and that dovetailed really well with um, what I helped um, in the Obama administration to do with Blue Button. And I'm really happy to say that the current administration is continuing and expanding that work. Right. Can I, can I uh, get your reaction to a, a caveat maybe that I would add to that, which is 
uh, all of that, but in a, in a way that's understandable and digestible. So much of what we pump out to our patients now over portals is, I would say, mostly useless because we just regurgitate uh, complex, poorly designed charts and medicalese and things like that. I love that. And, and one way that I've, um, I've heard data talked about um, as an, uh, a resource and, and people talk about it as if it's oil, I actually prefer the metaphor mm-hmm. of wheat. Um, and, uh, what I would like to see is that people bring their wheat to a mill and a a mill then creates the flour and you can take it home, um, and make your own bread or muffins or cake, or you direct that flour to the bakery of your choice, which then, um, is more expert at, at making it digestible, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think of those, those bakeries as the entrepreneurs, for example, um, mm-hmm. that, that the government should create a situation where people have access to, um, to, to good, clean wheat. And there should be maybe a central mill for making sure that the data is um, usable. But then um, this is where I get really excited about entrepreneurs who are going to have better ideas than certainly in the government and maybe even in traditional healthcare about how to bring that data and make it useful for consumers. Yes, yes. I like that analogy too, uh, much better than the oil analogy. And uh, I'm getting hungry thinking <laughs> about cakes. And that's another story. Um, uh, you you wear many hats uh, as an advisor to companies big and small, nonprofit, for profit, as a researcher, prolific writer, and as a speaker. Uh, taking all of your insight into account, where do you see the future of healthcare going? And the role of digital tools in that future? What are the trends, opportunities? And of course, barriers and challenges. I think one of the biggest barriers is um, something we talked about earlier, and that is um, a perception of a lack of engagement. Um, I think that um, people don't generally want to think about their health until they have to. Mm. And yet, we're also all walking around dealing with factors that affect our health that would never be covered in a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. And here I have to honor the work of our friend, Alexandra Drain, who brought forward Mm -hmm. this idea of the unmentionables of healthcare. Um, And it's the, it's the bad boss, bad sex, bad marriage part of life. You know, you didn't get enough sleep. You are, worried about losing your job, you know, you shouldn't have that third glass of wine, but you do, you know, these are the things that, um, you know, is there a role for digital health? I think maybe. Um, and I'll go back to the survey that we did, um, asking teens and young adults about the, um, the apps that they have on their phones. And this is a a ray of hope for me. We found that two-thirds of 14 to 22-year-olds are using health apps, which was astonishing to me. They are using health apps that help them uh, track their sleep, that help them track symptoms, 
that um, remind them throughout the day um, to take a moment from mindfulness and meditation. Mm-hmm. There are young people who I think are engaging with the real aspects of physical and emotional well-being in ways that we adults are not. And that's what gives me hope for the future, that, that there is an opportunity to use the devices that we all carry around to remind us of our humanity and to remind us of the connection that's available. So that's, that's my hope. Really well stated. I, uh, I'm tempted to leave it there because that was so profound. But what, what, let me ask you one more uh, sure. thing. And, and uh, what's, uh, you, you sort of had maybe a little hiatus uh, uh, since, since coming away from the government, what everyone I think who works in the government deserves <laughs> that. And I know you've been doing other things, but, but what's on the horizon? What's exciting for you? Thanks for asking. Um, I was actually in the middle of writing a book when I got the call from Todd Park and Brian Civic to um, join them in the uh, in the in that line of CTOs at HHS. And I want to get back to writing um, because I still see a place for um, the pulling together of all the evidence, all the research, all the stories that I've collected over the years about peer-to-peer healthcare. Um, I keep going out and talking to companies and organizations who are thirsty for this knowledge. And I keep going out and meeting more and more patients and caregivers who keep saying, this is the key. This is how I found the treatment that cured my child. This is how I was able to recover from that surgery. Um, And so I'm looking for ways to um, keep doing my research, but um, to get back to writing that book. Well, anyway, we can help you here. We're we're all in. Uh, Thank you so much for spending time with us today. And uh, last question, which is really a uh, if there's anything you think we should have asked or anything that you want to speak about uh, to our listeners before we sign off. Oh my. Um, I think we covered everything. Well, that's our hope anyway. All right. Thanks so much, Susanna. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Well Connected with Dr. Joe Kavita. A special thanks for me personally to Tony McMillan, our engineer, and Lynn Josephson, our senior marketing manager for putting this series together. If you enjoyed our show and want to know more, visit our website at partners.org forward slash connected health, all one word. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Connected Health. For more episodes of our series, search Partners Connected Health on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to podcasts.